0: Hey everyone, it's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. Where do the New York Times bestseller list, rock and roll, and award-winning comedy intersect? Wherever today's Work in Progress guest happens to be. Carrie Brownstein is a name you probably recognize most from the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning sketch series Portlandia, which she wrote and starred in alongside Fred Armisen. But before and after that, Carrie has done equally groundbreaking work and in entirely different artistic areas. She was a hard-rocking riot girl as a band member of Slater Kinney and a critically acclaimed memoir writer. And now she's written and starred in a genre-bending film called The Nowhere In, which was released in September. I think Carrie is a really fascinating individual. I am such an enormous fan of her work and her brain, and I am betting that as you get to know her better over the course of this interview, you all will feel the same. So let's get to it. How have you been? how how's your, how's your pandemic year and a half gone?
1: <laughs> uh, it's been okay. You know, I feel lucky. People in my family were safe and no one really got too sick. But, you know, it was also hard. Just mm-hmm. a lot of experiences becoming sort of muted and strange. And then this search for the return to normalcy, but then realizing that perhaps that's sort of a fallacy, like just normal as a concept seems to be slipping away and then also like what of normal do we want to hold on to I just feel like I went into the the same or similar existential crisis as anyone but I also I'm an introvert there are things about it that aligned with how I am as a human in terms of just the insularity so that was nice after a while, like after I, you know, when we got past the point of thinking like, well, we're all done for, right. then I was like, okay, I guess certain parts of this are good for contemplation. Yeah. Um, what about you? I, I
0: think what was interesting for me, I, I'm kind of a community animal. I always joke mm-hmm. that like, I'm a puppy and my best friend is a cat. She is, she's mm-hmm. like up on the shelf leans back, checks things out, is very quiet, observes. And I like, I want to be right in a pile of all the bodies cuddling. (laughs)
1: Uh
0: And I really, I realized I'm actually much more introverted than I understood. And I think, I think I, I love community, you know, in, in some of what we do and making stuff with other people. I, I love the collaboration. And I actually think I need a lot more quiet time than I've ever realized because I'm always on set. And so I've, mm-hmm. I've been like, I love this. This is what I'm the best at. and And I spent so much time at home and there was, a, I'll never forget a week where my partner looked at me and he was like, Hey, honey, I don't think you've been outside the front door in five days. And I think maybe we <laughs> should go for a walk. And I was like, oh, I'm really, I'm hermiting hard, aren't I? Okay, let's go outside.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely go into the other extreme. But I I do agree because so much of the work we do is collaborative and I think I have gotten accustomed to that kind of communication and togetherness where it's very Mm -hmm. productive. We're all working towards the same goal. But then at the end, I feel at the end of the day, like very sort of, fulfilled and edified and socially as well as creatively. But I think that's actually my preferred mode of socializing. I realized it doesn't have to be work related, but when we're all like kind of working towards something. So maybe I like structured, structured activities, like a, like a, just an kind of like an aimless, like I get social anxiety around like, a dinner party that's not close friends, you know, where I'm just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what the expectations are. Mm -hmm. And those things all went to the wayside during the pandemic. So I haven't been to an awkward dinner party or event. In many industries, including ours, there's things called events, which not everyone has, like not every industry has an event, but many do. And I'm like, oh, I haven't had to do an event. Like, Mm -hmm. what is an event? You know what I mean? Like, it's just so much pageantry, like all these things that I kind of do not miss.
0: I get such terrible anxiety at
1: those things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So there has been some clear. It's been clarifying, I guess, to just think like, who are my people, and or this is the kind of it's uh, interactions I want slightly more, slightly more intimate, or just like I don't know, not a bunch of superfluous things where I have to navigate all the unknowns. Mm-hmm. Which makes me sound averse to like new experiences, which I don't think I am, but I, I definitely get more anticipatory anxiety around new experiences.
0: I get that. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I feel like that's pretty normal. I, I think for me, it's part of the reason that I've leaned into this medium because I mm-hmm. really love, like the thing I love about a dinner party is that you can sit for hours and talk to someone. I, I don't know how to do the the event small talk. I'm like, what are people here talking about? I, what, what's on your insides? What do you believe in? Not an appropriate event question. Okay, see ya. Like, I don't know. So I think I've, I've leaned yeah. into this because they're, even through a screen, being able to sit with someone and really dive into their thoughts and what makes them tick and why they make the things they make feels so luxurious and, and, yeah. and safely intimate in a way.
1: Yeah. Well, there's sort of a, it's boundaried still. Mm-hmm. The this, this small talk thing really makes me anxious. Like I, I wish, and I think everyone, even people that are good at small talk, just wish there was like a little button or something that you could, like, I don't know how to extricate myself where you just, you're like, okay, we've talked weather, sports, <laughs> whatever else. I the, these categories. And then you're like, we're done. Usually I'm just like, I'm going to go. And I always say like, I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go get a drink. And then mm-hmm. you just it's a tacit agreement that you're never going to come back to that person, <laughs> which is so awkward. And it's not about them. And people have done it to me, but you just you don't know how to like start or end those things. Yeah. I, at the end of those nights, I come home and I'm like, did I talk to anyone? Like it's just such a blur. Yeah. So yeah, this is better.
0: Well, I'm glad. I I, I think of this <laughs> as the the proverbial at the party. You find your friends in the corner with a tequila, and you're like, we're good. Yeah. You know, yeah. the the thing we all hung out in Austin was kind of like that. It was like, oh hey, you're new, but we're in the corner and you're
1: good. Yeah, that was that was fun good. and a little more like f- friend based. Yeah. than well, it was a birthday party. Yeah. So, Carrie, I'm so
0: curious to to kind of dive in with you, and and I I realize we're just chatting, and there's people at home being like, we have questions, and I feel like I should get to some of those. But I always kind of like to go back with people first because, you know, I would imagine that for your fans who are listening to this, I know that for me as a fan, like when I first met you, I was like, holy oh, shit, it's Carrie Brownstein. She's so cool. Um, you make – you are. You really are. You're you're such a talented performer and you're a writer and you're a director and you're a musician. and And you have such a – like, fascinating story. But I think the thing that has always really made me curious about the way you work is the way that you also tell other people's stories. You know, you, you, you've you really created this, like, delicious world that's so rich. There's so many um, kind of textures in your work. And whether it's Portlandia, you know, winning a Peabody or Slater-Kinney or your book, I... I'm curious, for all of us who look at you now as this woman with this amazing kind of laundry list of accomplishments and, and projects, where did the creative process begin? Like, like was Carrie as a little girl an introverted and curious person, or, or were you totally different?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would call myself an introvert as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think I was a little more outgoing. Well, I'll just say I think often what happens as you get older is you sort of, if you have sort of a performer side of yourself, which I do, and obviously you do, like you you kind of compartmentalize that, you know, a Mm -hmm. little bit because there's certain energy that you use for that. And so I think I love being on stage or doing things like that or doing a reading or something. But then I think in the rest of my life, I feel a little more not closed off, just like Private. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, I really loved that as a way of performing, as a way of interacting with my friends. Like, I was always trying to get them, like, rope them in, like, the neighbor. You know, before you, like, get to middle school where you just kind of, if you live around in a neighborhood where you hang out with other people, it's like you just, just kind of a group of, like, ragtag neighborhood kids. And I'd mm-hmm. always be like, we should be putting on a play. And everyone <laughs> would be like, yeah. And then I would, like, assiduously like sit down and start working on it. And like two hours later, everyone else was like, well, we're bored. Like people would lose interest, but I'd be like always sort of the ringleader of let's put on this talent show, let's put on this play. And I'm sure it was a little bit annoying, but for like them, but I really enjoyed it as a way of being around other people. So yeah, I think it started as just a way of, yeah, of relating and interacting in a way that felt um, like more not even in control cuz i think that's something i ascribed to it later taking a slightly chaotic childhood and figuring out a way of like navigating it but mm-hmm. i think at the time i wasn't conscious of that i think i was just like this is a way of of being in the world that i feel comfortable and can kind of step outside myself a little bit so it was it was that first and then and i also really liked writing as a kid
0: did the interest in writing come from being a big reader
1: i wasn't really actually a big reader until college like mm-hmm. I read but I didn't become bookish until later and then I went back and was like oh here's all the books that my high school English teacher just <laughs> told me that I should read that I was just skimming through in order to write the paper but now <laughs> yeah. I'll actually read these books I think I was more interested in film as a kid like I loved movies mm-hmm. and I really I was very nerdy like you know remember there was this magazine premiere magazine it was like the movie magazine like in the Whoa. 80s <laughs> And, you know, I asked my parents for a um, subscription to premiere, and I would watch, I don't remember if it was, I think it was called Turner Classic Movies even then. Mm-hmm. I would like VCR, you know, they'd be, like, we're having a Betty Davis film festival this weekend. Even like when I was 13 or 14, I would record and, and be watching like Dark Victory or something, or like these weird old like Betty Davis movies. And I would get biographies of, James Dean and, and like Marlena Dietrich, like I just, it was very anachronistic to what was actually happening in the, you know, this was not what was actually showing in the 1980s. This is one of the popular music, but I really dove into this past. And so a lot of my writing, I think, came out of just this imagination that, that films presented to me. And then later read some great literature and realized, oh, this is a, a vast world to explore.
0: It's interesting thinking about that because when you talk about loving to put these plays on and kind of being the organizer, and I think back to what you were saying in the beginning, you know, even about what this year's revealed, about how nice it is to just have an understanding of the expectation. I think about it as, you know, you're either like dumping water on the floor or you're putting it in a container. I just love a container because I know what it is. Yeah. And yes. and I think about this little girl version of you being like, "Here is the container for our experience and fun, and we will make a version of a
1: movie." <laughs> it's so Tracy Flick. It really I is love just that. It. Yeah, it's like, why am I trying to like herd cats here? Like, these are other kids that don't want that. But I did. Yeah, I liked the formality of it. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it it helped make sense of something and provide some structure.
0: Yeah. Well, it gives you a structure and interestingly the structure allows you then to have a goal. You're not yes. just playing, you're making a thing. You have a goal and I don't know, I I get that. I I am deeply relating to that in this moment. I think it's why I loved as a kid I loved camp so much cuz we got to be a ragtag oh, bunch yeah. of kids but every day there was an activity. I knew what I was supposed yes. to do. I knew what I was meant to achieve. I I stayed there, you know, as I got older and be- eventually like, you know, became a counselor in training and a camp oh, counselor. Oh, I love it. I loved being a camp counselor. I was like, this is the thing I am the best at.
1: <laughs> Plus there's a song. Like I still yeah. remember camp songs. Oh, same. Yeah.
0: I have my camp blanket from my 5 year. I like yeah, I'm deeply nostalgic for it. Well, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in Southern California, but I went to camp up in the Sierra National Forest every summer
1: and just loved
0: it, loved it. What about you?
1: Yeah, I grew up outside Seattle and the camp I went to um, was on in the San Juan Islands, which are amazing. And it was on Orcas Island. Wow. And yeah, just very, lots of things that, I don't know if your camp experience was like this, but certainly a lot of things that kids today would not be able to do, like archery or also shooting rifles. Yeah. Just like a 15 or 16-year-old camp counselor asking us all to lie down on these cots and then we would like load our little guns and shoot. And no one like thought anything of it. No one thought like, well, this could be dangerous. We no. just shot at the target and then went on our way and then went to, on to the next thing, which is like canoeing or making some kind of lanyard. Yep. But yeah. I'm and I'm loved. not romanticizing it. I'm just certainly saying definitely different than camp right now. No one's shooting guns at camp.
0: It is so different. And you think about the generational gap. I mean, fun fact, I started going to camp when I was nine. I loved riflery. And my dad grew up in Montreal, Canada, but literally spent every summer of his childhood on the family farm on the St. Lawrence River. And so my dad remembers when he got his first .22 rifle when he was 12. So I would, like, come home from camp with my little sharpshooter targets, like, guys, look, I'm getting really good at this. And um, and so I got a little .22 rifle when I turned 12 from my dad. And... I, I don't know if you'd be allowed to do that now, but I don't know. We we really loved it. That was kind of our thing.
1: I think in other parts of the country, and I if you have listeners that are in Montana or Wyoming, mm-hmm. which I, I assume you probably do, they're probably like, oh, yeah. Because I feel like every once in a while, it's, it's easy to, like, you know, when we're on, like, the West Coast or, you know, in the big cities on the East Coast, to think no one's out shooting. But it is traditional as, like, sport totally. and hunting. You yeah. know, our I think our association with guns is obviously, rightly so, pretty dark. But there's sort of a, another aspect to it, like you're talking about with your dad.
0: Yeah. that That's what, kind of what I wish we could go back to as we're having these debates. I'm like, well, if we could take all the dark, scary and the, you know, weapons of war out of it, I, I think kids at the range with their parents is great. I loved it. And, and yeah, I think we forget, you know, if you live in any version of a sort of dense city or town, you're not like in the backyard doing target practice with a rifle or a bow and arrow. But yeah, when you get out into, you know, more rural zones, farm towns, I mean, I grew, I spent half my childhood life in a town of 5,000 people.
1: Like there were far more cattle than people in our town. And so that- In Southern California? In Central California.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that was just like what we did. Big Friday night was like, we're going to the creek to catch frogs. (laughs) And it was so fun and I loved it. And so I, yeah, of course there's different different activities when you're out and about. I think about a kid in Seattle, aside from the beauty of the Pacific Northwest and, oh my God, Orcas Island is the prettiest place I've ever been. But you talk about how your movie taste was uh, very nostalgic for the past despite the era that you were growing up in. Was was your musical taste influenced by, you know, the iconic era of grunge coming up in Seattle or different?
1: No, it definitely was. I mm. mean, I think concurrent with going back to like the golden age of film, my musical taste in the 80s was squarely in the pop world, which was just, you couldn't avoid it. You know, it was all... the. Madonna and Michael Jackson and George Michael and just the biggest stars. But then when I entered high school and segued from awkward trying to kind of hang on to some identity that was never going to suit me, which was just like following around more popular kids um and just not knowing who I was. I was like, "Oh, who are these much more interesting kids?" And um this was probably when I was 15 like ninth grade, basically. And they were called, because it was before alternative was a word,
0: Mm. you know, like alternative
1: sort of came around like with Nirvana. Yeah. So all these different little niche groups had to kind of bond together. So you had like the goths, Mm. the metal kids at my school, they were called bat cavers which is kind of a... That's a vibe. An amalgam... <laughs> yeah, very much a vibe. Definitely an amalgamation of like goths and punks. So I was very taken by them because they just seemed super cool. And mm. I had just started getting into first older punk music, but there was all this stuff happening in Seattle. And kind of pre- like Nirvana... Let's see would they have... Exi- they... Bleach had come out, but there were sort of these earlier Seattle bands, uh, like this band called Green River, which I think had someone from Mudhoney in it. Then there was Mudhoney and this band called The Fastbacks. And there was, yeah, Sky Cries Mary were sort of like the local goth band. So that was all kind of percolating. And then at the same time, there's all this music coming out of Olympia. So one of my friends who was a little more in the know was like, no, there's also this music in Olympia, it's beat happening in Bikini Kill. And so yeah, all of a sudden this whole region was like vibrating with mm-hmm. a real urgency. And then I was completely on board. And at the same time, like going to record stores and being like, well, who are all the predecessors to these bands and, you know, discovering earlier forms of punk out of like New York or, or LA. So it was a, a real time of discovery for me.
0: Oh, that's so special. I feel like you need to hang out with my best friend, Kenny. He He's a photographer and he makes music videos and he literally grew up like, you know, 16 inch Mohawk playing oh, punk shows in the sewers of San Diego.
1: Like, Oh, wow. San Diego definitely had a punk scene. The whole Southern California yeah. scene was pretty wild.
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild. And I, I just think about the sort of historical education, you know, in the 10 plus years that we've been friends, like going through albums of all the old punk flyers and seeing the way people used to press their stuff. And I, I don't know, I I have a nostalgia for it, even though I didn't grow up around it. I just think it's so cool. I think young people, especially figuring out where to put their angst and like finding an identity, you know, also in the corner. Maybe that's why I like it so much now, because I'm like, oh, I'm a corner person. I like to be in the corner. And I, I just, I I love the sort of energy of it and the the high tension and the exploration of it. You You've mentioned in some other interviews that, you know, growing up, you like bounced around before you found your interest. You know, you tried this and you tried that and then you found the guitar. Was that also in this era or did that come later in school?
1: No, it was in this era. Mm-hmm. So... In addition to all this, so we were in the suburbs. We were like 15, 20 minutes outside of Seattle. So, you know, the, the big city when you're in the exurbs or suburbs mm-hmm. is just like this beacon of coolness and it's urbane and sort of forbidden, mm. especially if you're young and your parents are like, no, you're not riding with a bunch of kids in the city. So there was yeah. just always this allure. So what often happens is kids form their own band. So in my high school, kids started playing music because we weren't fully allowed to engage with like Seattle because we were right on the edge of being too young or Mm. we literally were too young to go to bar shows. So this kid, Jeremy Enoch, who ended up being in Sunny Day Real Estate, and then this guy, William Goldsmith, who was the first drummer in the Foo Fighters, like these guys were in the scene and they had their own early bands. So we would go and watch them. And eventually I just thought like, I want to Play guitar too. And then there wasn't really, it was a fairly, it wasn't like a guys only scene or anything like that. But I, so I didn't feel left out of it in that way. Mm-hmm. But I just knew I didn't want to just be on the periphery observing. It felt like a form I wanted to explore because it seemed very immediate, especially. Rudimentary punk, you know. You're like, I don't need to know that much. Just a couple chords and mm. some anger, and just <laughs> mesh the two together. So, I, yeah, I convinced my parents. And I think what you're referring to is, yeah, like that. My parents were a little hesitant at first, cause they're like, "Oh, kids go through phases. Like, you know, you want the rollerblades or you want the cool new bike or whatever." And I think my parents were like, "I'm not going to invest in this if you're not really going to play." So it was one of the first things actually the first thing of value that i had to earn money to buy mm. so i worked at a movie theater on the weekends and saved up money to to buy a little cherry red epiphone guitar it was an epiphone copy of a of a stratocaster and i think because i bought it myself the relationship to it was much different it wasn't mm. something filtered through my parents or that it didn't it also didn't feel like a kid thing. You know, there was something that felt like very empowering about just knowing, no, this is this is my first tool to like express myself that isn't just, I don't know, part of my childhood. Like this, it felt like a through line to adulthood mm-hmm. and I really dove into it. So yeah, that was definitely f- fun and eye-opening and really exhilarating to listen to music and then try to figure it out and take the few chords I knew at the beginning and see how many songs I could write with four or five chords.
0: Yeah. And then how do you begin to learn? How do you get better? Is it with other kids or did you start seeking out lessons?
1: Yeah. So with Jeremy, um, who I mentioned from Sunny Day Real Estate, although that wasn't his band at the time, he was a little bit of our like wonderkind in school. Like he mm. could just, you know, pick up a guitar and play. At the time it was like Sinead O'Connor and mm. uh, like R.E.M., Automatic for the people had just come out and wow. certain some U, I don't remember what the U2 album was at the time probably rattle and hum or something you know and he would just sit and play like oh here's the Sinead O'Connor song most of this a lot of songs on I do not want when I haven't got are just two or three chords so he would just say like okay this is the last day of our acquaintance it's these two chords and I was like okay so he would just show me he just basically showed me a few chords mm. and I just went from there I never took formal lessons and in fact, kind of ret- in retrospect, as I started meeting more people in music who did have formal training, I would sort of glean from them. And there's always a debate, and there's no right or wrong, but you know you have the people who have been formally trained and the people who are self-taught,
0: mm-hmm. and everyone
1: wants a little bit of the other thing. You know, yeah. people that have been through tons of music theory are like, "Well, you—the whole point is then you have to forget everything." But people who never went through that are like, "But I wish I could grasp." You know, so anyway, I, I did kind of go back later and learn things, and I had taken piano lessons, so I I do know mm. notes and scales and stuff like that. So I had some understanding of of what music was and and how to read it and how to how to think about it. Mm. But it was. It was more just self-exploratory, exp- though.
0: That's so cool. I just started taking piano lessons.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Was, and are you? is it online right now or no? Yeah. Are you able to go in person? Yeah, oh, no, okay.
0: online. But it's interesting because I set this goal for myself. I realize, and maybe this is where some of my anxiety comes in, like I'll set a goal and then I, it takes me like three years to do it. Like when I turned 30, I was like, I'm an adult. I'm going to start going to therapy. And I didn't find a therapist until I was 33. And then like I decided I wanted to learn to play the piano. And weirdly, as I started talking about it, I basically said – a friend of mine was like, well, how are you going to do it? Are you going to get a keyboard? And I was like, I guess. I don't know. I'll figure it out. And like I just know that someday – and I explained the kind of piano I wanted to have. And a week later, I found it at a flea market. And it was in perfect condition. And I was like, something weird is happening. So I bought this piano, which like sat in the entryway of my house for a couple of years before I started actually taking lessons. I was like, "Wow, I really am just this little slow to the takeoff here," but it's cool. And I, in learning now, I really think about how much I wish I'd taken any instrument as a kid, because there, there is to your point, kind of a just an understanding of music. I think about it with my friends who. You know, we're lucky enough to grow up in like international households. My, one of my best friends, her mom grew up in California and her dad grew up in Mexico. And so they grew up in a bilingual household. And, you know, our other buddy speaks Swedish. And I'm just like, God, you have a, you have a flexibility with language that those of us who try to learn languages when we're older, it's just not quite the same. So I think that's very cool to know that you played piano before.
1: Yeah. piano's is a good entryway into other instruments cuz it's just like the key it's very easy to understand mm. what a scale is or what an octave is when you look at a piano to me compared to any other instrument yeah but i i was not i'm not a great piano player i'm an actually mediocre to terrible piano player now but it i think it was a good foundation and i hated I hated practicing. Yeah. Like I would always get called in to practice piano. And always I just wanted to play pop songs. Like, you know, I'd be like going through Beethoven for beginners or whatever. And I'd be like, but I'd rather play like a virgin on the piano. And I would just remember my parents like <laughs> buying me like the sheet. You could just go buy like the sheet music for pop songs. And I'm just like, oh, God, here I am plunking out like a virgin. <laughs> like the most the most virginal version of this song. Like You're
0: like, just, I'm 13. Um, here I go.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, not even sure what the song was about.
0: How how then did music begin to take shape in your adult life? Because cut to the band, when when did that all begin to change?
1: I think in college, I went to liberal arts college in Washington called Evergreen State College, and I did not study music there and was fairly academic, but at the same time was very immersed in this vibrant music scene in Olympia. There was a handful of independent labels and all these bands who were Mm. quite incendiary, whether it was Bikini Kill or Bratmobile or Elliot Smith was on the label from there. You know, it just was such like an incubator of, of art and sound. And it just, I I was, that was as much of a school for me as college itself. Mm. And So I formed a band there with some friends and then eventually met Corin Tucker, who I'm still in Slater-Kinney with, and we just formed a band together. It it felt like everyone there kind of made music. Like when you hear, uh, but you know, you're reading about like the New York, like no wave scene or something like in the 70s, it was just like people who didn't even traditionally do music were like, oh, I'm going to pair this cool poem with the guitar. I'm going to do like some avant-garde thing. Like it was a little bit like that in Olympia. There were sort of traditional bands and then a lot of unconventional configurations, you know, like a weird two-piece or just bass and drums. You know, there was just a lot of elasticity. So that was very exciting. But I think it wasn't until I started playing with Corin that we really just thought, oh, this this could be something we, we sort of dared to have like ambitions beyond what was a fairly strident, I think a lot of punk scenes back then were kind of strident. And I, I totally am glad I came out of that scene. I think it like instilled in me a lot of ideas and ideologies that I, I, I think I still am in conversation with. I don't think I subscribe to them, but I think are, I am in conversation with, but as I graduated from college, I think we were, we had put out Dig Me Out, which was just this record that by most metrics is not a big record like we never we've always been an outsider band like we were never on the radio we never were on MTV but at that point dig me out made all these year-end lists and people were writing about us and we sort of i don't know it just felt like something we could continue doing and so instead of going to graduate school which i thought i would do i was like oh well i love doing this and let's keep going and then all of a sudden we were putting out a record every year for a decade, which was pretty crazy.
0: It is pretty crazy. I mean, when you think about the achievements and and also just the, I don't know, it's funny when you say we weren't on the radio, we weren't this, we weren't that. I'm like, God, how does that work? Because for me, in in my sort of musical lexicon, I'm like, you guys are iconic. Like, you're a huge band. What are you talking about? Um, so it's no, it's I, wild to hear. You, I don't know. As a fan, I think sometimes you forget.
1: Yeah, and we're kind of back to that time now, where there are so many bands that you know, like the mm. the kind of top down like hierarchy or the the ways that people gain access to music are so diffuse now that it's not, we're no longer in the like radio is king or MTV is a make or break situation. Like so many bands just exist on SoundCloud or Mm -hmm. put out mixtapes or no, you know, so I mean, we're almost back to that time where you, you don't have to have any of those outlets. But I think when we were coming around, there was a, a definite difference between mainstream and underground mm-hmm. and now it's kind of conflated but yeah you're right i mean i'm we're very lucky like i think we we came up at a time and just ha- lasted long enough to have an imprint and and really mm-hmm. feel like we we made something but by like sort of the i don't know classic ways of of measuring success that was not ours but also we did it the way we wanted to
0: yeah which i think I think for longevity, it's better when you do you.
1: Yeah, for sure, and yeah, I think especially especially with music. But don't don't you, do you find that with your career and as you? I know it's not a perfect analog, music and acting. But have you found that by like sort of sticking to what you want to do? That if you just Mm-hmm. sort of last, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like then you, st- the, the, the award, like the reward is a kind of accumulative. It's not necessarily instantaneous.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that what so many of us see and assume is quote unquote normal in the world of entertainment, it's like a firework moment that we think we're all supposed mm-hmm. to have, but what it really is is like a fireball. It's like when a star explodes. It's actually really scary <laughs> if you're in space and that happens, and things are you know gaseous and burning. I also went to space camp. In case that wasn't clear, I oh, I, I love this. Yeah, I really, really loved it. But I, I, mean, I think in, in my young career, it kind of feels like you know when you're in the movie theater and you're looking up and everything's so big, and you think, wow, that's that's what it's supposed to be. And up close, it can be scarier. I in my early career I went toe to toe with a very famous actress and it got down to she and I for like six movies in a row and her her star was really ascending and and she booked every single one of these movies and every single time the director and the everybody would be like you know you're you're going to be so amazing and we're so excited to see where your career goes and can't believe you're just getting started and and you'll be in this person's shoes soon and and she had like a really tragic, explosive, horrible, devastating young life. It happened too big and too fast for her. And I I think that being so green and not, you know, quote unquote, having a big break that happened overnight actually probably like saved my life. You know, it mm-hmm. it allowed me to kind of be a kid, I thought I was an adult and I realized, you know, at 20, you're a child. You don't know anything. I've got my first right. job three years out of like wearing a uniform in an all-girls school. Like, what are we talking about that people let us be a- adults <laughs> on sets? What? Right. Um, and so I realized that the slow burn, I'd, I'd much rather be, you know, a flare than a firework. and mm-hmm. And it enables you to kind of be a little more curious and not get so swept up. And I i don't know. I think for me that that was certainly great. And I think weirdly that it took me taking a break from the kind of television schedule I'd been accustomed to, to actually truly spread and slow down and and reconnect to my self and my adult priorities and, and, and a different kind of curiosity that had more room than five minutes here or 18 minutes on a turnaround there. You know, I I didn't realize I needed to kind of breathe.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think of it like a career versus a moment, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'd rather have a career and careers do have, Fluctuations, but it tends to last longer. You know, like, and I think once you kind of settle in, also you just you you do get used to people coming and going, and that ebb and flow. And you know, you you stop seeing yourself in relation to Mm -hmm. the next thing, the younger thing, the whatever. You're just like, yep, this is just how it works. And if you wait long enough, it's like only some people make it through that, and you you, you're you're rooting for them, but Mm -hmm. you're just you just realize the truth is. When the dust settles, you know, out of the five big things of a certain year, or a couple years, one person becomes, you know, oh, okay, they they have the career, and those are the things you start to value a little more. It's just also, you start to things come in, are put in perspective of like, well, what else? It's not just about the work, you know. Yeah. Like, there's so many other things.
0: There's so much um, to a life, and I, yeah. I think about. Us really being in this moment where perhaps because there's so much more transparency in the world, um, you know, I would imagine we can ascribe that a lot to digital everything, honestly. Social Mm -hmm. media, the ability to look up records, the ability to, you know, scan historical newspapers from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to go to the library and go through those giant scanning machines that we had to when we were little kids trying to write book reports and (laughs) stuff.
1: Or like microfiche. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I think about the fullness of a life versus, you know, uh, your public career or or a promotional tour or something. We get to peek into people's lives more now than we used to. And Mm -hmm. part of what it Excites me about that. I have lots of reservations about it, but part of what excites me about it is the potential and, and now what feels like a propensity for people to stand for things, um, mm-hmm. to take part in movements in whatever ways they can. And I realize we've always been doing this, but I'm excited that we're in an era where it's no longer ac- acceptable for people to go, mm, I don't really do that. and Right, right. I guess I should clarify, I don't mean to say that everyone's meant to do it in the same way or that everyone's meant to be an expert on everything. I I find myself having to take distance because I have to remind other people that just because I know a lot about something, I'm not an expert on everything and can't be. And I can't can't survive trying to carry it all. But I, as tangential as this is getting, it's, it's all sort of coming up because I'm thinking about people who've stepped into movements and stepped into spaces and and there's so much about Slater Kinney and Riot Girl that really fascinates me in terms of just what that movement was for women in music and and also just in a moment before this moment where everyone's talking about how you deserve some self-care and just take up space, these were women really boldly, brashly, loudly taking up space. And I I don't know. I just am wondering if you can explain to anyone who's listening who doesn't know what Riot Girl is, um, how you guys got involved. Can you kind of paint us a picture?
1: I should preface this by saying that while my bandmate, Corinne, was definitely a part of Riot Girl. I was a little more on the periphery when I was still in high school um up you know, in the suburbs of Seattle when I started hearing about Riot Girl and the the music that was going along with it mm. um and starting to get the fanzines. There was a Bikini Kill fanzine, which is also of course, the name of a the band. There was an actual Riot Girl fanzine. There was a fanzine called um Girl Germs. Uh, Mm. and jigsaw and there was just all this like literature and music and it was a very unabashed in your face really just taking all these topics that were taboo up until that point especially in the context of of music Mm. and really bringing them to the forefront whether it was sexual assault or the female body being objectified or exploited. People were singing about intersectionality of race, class, gender. Like it was, and there was queer influences. Like it was just all these things that, that particularly in in punk up until that point, but kind of right before then had become a little bit uh, like the hardcore scene basically was so hyper-masculine and very kind of violent, like mm-hmm. within these punk scenes, there was often these mosh pits and slam dancing that were kind of alienating in how forceful and and physical they were. And then starting in DC and in Olympia, essentially, were a group of women who kind of took feminism from the academic realm and placed it in a very relatable vernacular, which is music. So for me, it was definitely the first time that these notions of feminism, and I will say it was definitely slanted slightly towards like w- what we would call white feminism, you know, even though there are plenty of women of color in there, like as often the, the clumsiness of of movements, sometimes when they're getting started, is they're not as intersectional as they aim for. Mm-hmm. But definitely like a lot of these kind of heady ideas were suddenly being conveyed in a way that was just like hit you over the head. It was the first time I really saw myself in music, like heard Hmm. lyrics that were explaining myself to me, like in the way that we seek that out in in all forms of art. So yeah, it was definitely people like clawing and scratching their way onto a canvas, onto stages, you Hmm. know, making space, safe spaces for women at shows, just bringing a discourse into a scene that had, as many scenes, like were very reticent about starting to incorporate some of these what seemed like radical ideas into the day-to-day. And it really did change music. And I think of, and eventually it changed a lot of other things too. But um, it was definitely exciting. And I see the female musicians that came before me as really doing a lot of the work. If you've seen the punk singer with which is about Kathleen Hanna like she, you know some of those state, it was there was actual like violence and threats and people saw saw her and her band as a definite threat to the people's way of of being into the status quo mm. and you know same with with Corin and in Heavens to Betsy you know they were a little two piece band and it's just amazing the terror that they evoked just by being loud and outspoken um yeah. it seems trait to say now, but at the time it was very radical. And the meetings that there were riot girl meetings where people really sat around and had the kind of discussions that are commonplace now that people have either online or in person sharing stories of, of sexual assault and finding ways of like, you know, there would be an instance of rape on a college campus and people would figure out like, how, how do we activate? How do we get, the school involved, how do we, mm-hmm. what does it, sort of slightly vigilante, but also just act, just share activism. And it, yeah, it was very exciting for yeah. sure. I definitely see its influence now and, and I'm glad that it's made strides in terms of acknowledging the ways that it was lacking and, mm-hmm. you know, becoming more, more inclusive in its current iteration. It's
0: very cool. And, and I mean, I think that that always has to be the goal, you know, I, I've been really trying to find the, the capacity to hold the both and of, we don't have time for people to, you know, learn lessons while people are out there suffering. And then there's the other side where I go, people don't know what they don't know. And they have to be mm-hmm. kind of welcomed and taught. And um, it excites me that there's history like this to look at. And, and yeah, I think about what that must've been like in that moment you know, as a teenager beginning to make music, that influence happening, I, I get this visual almost of like young girls seeing women put a stake in the ground and be like, we're claiming it. And then you get to come after and and make music. And, and I imagine that that influenced the band and all of you as, as women and probably other work as you've moved forward as
1: well. For sure. I mean, I think... Well, it's interesting because I feel like the f- the first people to come often are not invited and they have to sort of force, you know, the kick the door mm-hmm. down. But what's so great, what was so great about Riot Girl was once... Those people kick the door down. Then you were actually invited, and to be invited yeah. to the table. I remember being at a show where you know usually you're sort of fighting if you want, if it was your favorite band, even you know. And I'm talking about fairly small clubs, but still like trying to get your way to the front. And it's just this wall of like big dudes, and then you have someone on stage saying, "Girls to the front." And you're like, "What?" Like you're. <laughs> You you see me. It's such yeah. a simple thing, but that can translate into anything. Like just people like having an awareness as they w- walk through a door, break a, the glass ceiling or whatever, mm. like to lay down tracks behind them and to just make sure you're not, Shutting the door behind you after you go in, and I think yeah. like that was definitely a lesson to learn from that. I came second, third, fourth. Like I was not a progenitor of this, but I was. I definitely benefited from other people's really mm. hard work, and then figuring out what I can learn from that. And the other thing I really loved about Riot Girl was definitely this attitude of of kind of not not caring, which I think it's tricky because the language now is so much about caring and kindness, which I I do completely subscribe to, but I also think there's kind of a, a limit of just like where to put your energy, like what things mm-hmm. to not have to care about or
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you shouldn't care about because it's actually just toxic or draining or, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I think that that a little bit of that kind of irascibility and feistiness, I think I I sort of kept, kept with me um, from that time, mm-hmm. you know, even though I've Mellowed. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, which is I think sometimes you have to have a little a little bit of fight in you just to survive.
0: Well, yeah, it's like you gotta keep the pilot light on.
1: At least, yes. At, at least.
0: You just very, always at the very just, least. it's always gotta be something burning that you can toggle up or or chill out. But I, I think you've always gotta have it going. You're nailing it with this band, and you've always loved movies and corralling all the ragtag kids into plays. How does the other side of your work begin to come into play? because you're making music? And again, now we're we're looking at this incredible show we loved, and obviously other work and the book. And how how do you begin to figure out how to spin multiple plates?
1: Uh, I think there is definitely a through line of writing and performance. And or I should say, and before music, like in middle school and high school, I was very into doing the school plays mm. and stuff like that. So there, it was always kind of percolating and I enjoyed writing. But I mean, it really was with Portlandia, just Fred Armisen also has a musical background mm. and he had he was on SNL. He was not in the main cast yet. I think he was still like a featured player. And he was a fan of the band and really just kind of reached out to me and had this idea for something. I think he'd been asked to do was something weird, like for the John Kerry campaign, like so long ago. Like he was like, the John Kerry campaign wants me to do like this little like humor sketch or something, you know, this little, and I, he's like, can you, you want to make something with me? And I was like, sure. That sounds weird and fun and <laughs> He had this whole character that he, where he wanted to play Saddam Hussein in his bunker, but he wanted to portray like that Saddam Hussein was found in a bunker and that he's just like kind of this aging British rock star. It's such a Fred idea, <laughs> and so he played Saddam Hussein like he's in like this really nice suit and he's got like this British accent and he's kind of like an older like Pete Townsend or something. And like this was the, and my character was just. My name was Cindy Overton, and I had a a cable access show from my basement in Ohio called Boink, and I was getting the first interview. (laughs) What's Saddam (laughs) Hussein? So dumb. (laughs) Anyway, so what was similar about it was that it became this extension of this friendship because Slater Kinney was so much of... You know, it was a very organic beginning. It wasn't like, oh, I'm looking for bandmates and I'm going to put an ad in the paper or some sfingali manager putting a band together. And often, as you know, in film and television too, sometimes it works out, but people sort of package. Like, okay, well, what if we, you should meet with so-and-so. I bet you guys mm-hmm. would like each other. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. It's all chemistry. But Fred and I just really developed a friendship and started making these little videos for fun until we kind of had developed our own sensibility and point of view and pitched it and it it turned into Portlandia. And so I think that just what it unlocked for me was that I'd always had this side of myself that viewed the world and phenomena through a more absurdist lens and through a slightly more literary lens. But Slater Kinney, obviously, it's, it's music and there's only Like I, I kind of see that in this sort of sacred way and I just sort of, it it just is what it is, you know, it it has these sort of parameters. And so this kind of gave me an opportunity to do something that was different. And it really provided a balance that I think I needed because I had already been starting, people had started to ask me to write music essays like they sort of knew like oh well she's able to kind of step outside of what she's doing and mm. and and write about it in a way and so it kind of allowed me to do that but less academically and just be like oh okay now I'm now I get to write about things in a way that's not just cerebral but also funny and and strange and finding the truth by looking at it 360 degrees you know yeah. like anyway it, it just it and then I think once that opened up for me it all just became part of the world that I wanted to be living in, I think, for myself.
0: I love that. I it's When you talk about getting out of the academic writing, I, I feel my chest get tight because I'm like, oh, God. I love comedy so much. I love to watch it. I love to perform it. But there is something that is – I'm struck with sheer terror at the idea of having to write it. And I think about you guys mm-hmm. writing this show. I mean, eight seasons of a show – and a Peabody award. Hello? <laughs> and I'm just like how do you, how do you even begin to give yourself the freedom to write that kind of material when you come from the world of writing music and writing essays?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think like or I just I love being ob- observant. That's just mm how I am and looking at the minutiae of a situation, looking at the ways people perform aspects of themselves. Like mm. I love watching couples perform couplehood. I love watching people perform personhood. Like just mm. these things that just feel like this meta version of like humanity where you're like, oh, are you, are you doing that because that's who you are? Or you just have learned through watching and that's how you're supposed to be in a certain situation. And like I love when moments get awkward or ring a little false or, you know, just all all those things of people kind of tripping up or yeah. anyway. So yeah, it was hard. And I, I definitely give credit. There's this woman, Alison Silverman, who wrote on Portlandia, the first season she was, she was a head writer on the Colbert show way back comedy central years, and then has written for Russian doll and a, a, a bunch of, she's a great writer, but she came in a first season of Portlandia And it was just me and Fred and Jonathan Kreisel, our co-creator, and Allison really. And she was so kind to me because there was—I mean, Fred is was just my friend, and he had a lot of faith in me. But there is a learning curve, you know. There is like I had not. Gone to like NYU or you know USC, and here I am like essentially in a in a writer's room, and I'm like, oh my gosh, pitching like so vulnerable. The only, I mean, it is not unlike sitting and playing some things on a guitar and saying, "What do you think of this melody or this guitar riff?" But especially with comedy, you're kind of looking for the laugh or looking you're looking for that approval. It's very frightening. Yeah. So Allison was just so good, you know, I would I was not great at pitching and she would l- really listen and she would sometimes come back and say, "You know, I think Carrie's idea is really good. Let's like kind of flesh it out a little bit." Mm-hmm. And I just I I'm so admiring and of her and grateful that she just took the time to just be like, "I these are good ideas. You're just not like presenting them in sort of the classic way. right? Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely a learning, a learning curve for sure. And same with first day on set. I remember mm. most of my scenes were, were with Fred and then we were doing an early sketch and then suddenly it was just me like in my, as my character doing like a little solo run of like riffing and improv. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, this <laughs> yeah. is horrifying. So it was trial by fire for sure. But I think no matter how much you can prepare for something, you do eventually just have to kind of yeah. go for it.
0: I mean, it sounds like that was your grad school.
1: It was my grad school and my film school. Because yeah. then then when I got into directing, it was mm. because I I never took for granted though, because I, you know, a lot of people who have their their own shows or are on a show, you know, you end up directing, which is great. Mm. But I was like, I just told my agents, like, get me any, like, I will do every directing job I can. And I, so I just started taking a ton of directing jobs. Cause I was like, you just, it's the Malcolm Gladwell thing. You just put in those hours. Yeah. And I was like, I got to learn. Oh, I want to pick your and brain I did. about
0: that sometime.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Well, I yeah, I would love to talk to you about that. Cause it, it really was, I was like, I, was like, I don't want to just assume because I've yeah. directed some Portlandia. And so, yeah, I just went out there and directed a bunch of shows. And now, now I feel like I can direct.
0: I love that. I'm almost seeing a Venn diagram of comedy and directing and acting improv and music. And, and you've, you've put all these little spaces together to be in the center. Was it from that kind of central place that the idea, the inspiration for the nowhere in came from? Where, where did, where did that little, where did, where did that begin to percolate?
1: You know, I guess it was, so when Annie put out Mass Seduction, so Annie being St. Vincent, Annie Clark, she put out Mass Seduction, and she asked me to help her with these very stylized interview segments where they were all fake interviews, and so I helped her write the fake questions. Mm. And they were, they were very strange, and and fun and hopefully sort of funny. And like a year and a half later, or whenever she was kind of wrapping up the mass seduction tour, which was this really like, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. Like it was so just like, so formal and like so just like, prescriptive. Like, you know, she had all this pleather and video and like, it was just maximalist. Like it was a really intense, you know, she's so brilliant at like creating persona and Mm. phases in her life. And so, and mass seduction was just intense. It was just this total like sensualist maximalist overload. And she's like, I think I want to make a concert movie with interstitial sketches. And I was like, okay, let's... (sighs) let's think about that and then as we started writing these little interstitial sketches there was just such a jarring contrast between like this very essentially scripted like performance that she was putting on like it was all in Ableton the video was like locked into the music like there just wasn't really room for breathing or improvisation so to go mm-hmm. from something like so boundaried and I don't know, that just was kind of playing with things that were really didactic to go from that to improv was just like, no, can't happen. Mm. So we thought like, well, ha- what would be a kind of movie that would actually speak to this version of St. Vincent that you've been exploring in Mass Seduction? And then we just started thinking about like music films and biopics and documentaries and we were like, well, what she's doing is so artful. We need to just create something that's more has some more hybridity to it and like allow it to be weird and to kind of speak to the ineffable quality of music, which is not, you can never quite pinpoint it. You mm-hmm. know, you're always coming at it experientially. So the movie is a little more experimental and experiential than anything we set out to do at the beginning. You know, ended up being like a full... Screenplay instead of just mm. oh here's ten disparate sketch ideas.
0: That's so cool. Does it feel interestingly first full circle to have just made this with her as a as a real examination of the persona of an artist and an album, and then to be going back into the studio with Slater Kinney? Like you have so much music <laughs> in your life right now. What what's kind of going through your head is as you're diving back into now making your own music?
1: Well, I think I just had a different hat on for Nowhere In. You know, like Mm. it was, I was writing it and I'm in it playing a very feckless, guileless version of myself. So for me, it wasn't really a a musical endeavor. Mm. But we did, at the time... Annie produced one of our records. So that felt very much of a world. And then our most recent record, we produced ourselves. But I I don't know. I think music for me, I don't know if you have something like this in your life, it just operates in like this third space. Like it just, mm-hmm. no one that I work with in terms of like agents or managers, like they're, my music is just on its own. And I really like that. Like mm-hmm. I just, I'm protective of it. And like, it just feels like something that came before and we'll come after, and like it's just there's a real freedom to it, I think. And so I returned to it. I I'm not surprised that that's what I did a lot during the the pandemic was was focus on music.
0: That's so special. Maybe that's why I'm taking the piano. I'm like, I need I need a thing. Here's the Venn, and then there's my circle over here. <laughs> you know that? Yeah,
1: I think that feels important. But you must have you must. I mean, yeah. But you, there's definitely something besides from music, you know, just that thing that you sort of are like, this is my world. This is, whether it's like a relationship or friendships or like nature where you're just like, nope, this is Mm -hmm. my safe place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For me, that's often been, you know, my close community and nature for sure. Just getting kind of out, Um, which I think is, we all need that. We all deserve that. Whatever, you know, feels like home. Yeah. You've had so many incredibly successful projects in different arenas. And I know we're, we're kind of talking about where they all lay in your life right now. Are there other mediums that you see on the horizon that, you, that you'd like to add to this sort of section of rings in your circus? Or are you very... Good with the ones you have and you and you just want to continue dipping in and out of those
1: I think the latter and it's mostly because even with that like there were there is just this thing that I've become so wary of in our like hyper capitalist society where it's just productivity you know mm. like how much like for a while it just felt like there was a real currency the currency was like you couldn't just be busy with one thing but it was like uh-huh. oh I'm working on this and I'm working on that and I just was like, who cares? Like, I just want to answer a question. Like, what are you working on? Nothing. Nothing. I'm not working on anything. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just fucking living my life. You know, like I just, I don't like that idea that like in order to be successful or happy or that like, there's just this bottomless pit of work that we're supposed Mm -hmm. to be just like moving around in. And it just feels so crass and, and competitive. And so I've really just been trying to focus on one or two things. Like it just... Uh, it feels like there's diminishing returns sometimes. Like I just, I, I never got to that place where I was felt like I was spreading myself too thin. But I was always wary of that. And so, yeah, I think the pandemic was it was clarifying in that way too. Of just like, you know what, I want to work on one thing and try. And if it doesn't mm. happen, then it doesn't happen. And then I'll move on to the next thing. I mean, obviously, things overlap in all of our lives. We're juggling multiple things, whether it's a couple work things or work family or whatever, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's there. It's life is, is messy and, and complicated, but I feel like I just have to kind of check myself. I don't need to be firing on all cylinders. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that even mean? You know, like all the, all the metaphors we use just seem like so inhuman. So anyway, yeah, if I, if I take on a new skill, it will be something that is just because I, Want to do it for mm-hmm. myself, and it has nothing to do with checking off a, a box or something.
0: Yeah, I like that you bring up the terminology. Someone pointed out to me recently that so many of the terms in our common lexicon are are violent or war based. I'm gonna conquer mm-hmm. it. I'm gonna beat it. You know, ev- everything is about you know fighting the battle, and it's so intense. And as I've been trying to think about. Living more than doing, mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about choosing a more tender vocabulary. I'm craving a softer daily existence than I used to. I have no desire to conquer yeah. anything.
1: Yeah, I like. I like that. I'd like to meander.
0: Yeah, I'd like to be a river.
1: Yeah, I. This uh, a friend of mine's girlfriend had this, made this like baseball cap and on it, it says no goals. (laughs) And I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little intense because it is, I've worn it a couple of times. And in my mind, I sort of like it as, cause it's just, you know, all of that like self-care language, which is totally well-meaning, but can sometimes become its own like Mm -hmm. addiction, its own like Competition, like who can be the most self caring? Yeah. It's like, isn't that the like it shouldn't be? We shouldn't be competing against someone else for self care. Yeah. So, you know, I sort of like it as sort of the antithesis of goal oriented life and living. But I have noticed the other day I was sitting outside of a store with my dog and this guy walked around. He's like, no goals, huh? And I was like, yeah, maybe this hat isn't that successful. <laughs> like, I gotta, it's, but I do know what you mean about just like, Finding a way, I mean, language is such a lens through which, you know, we mm-hmm. think about things and how it shapes our thoughts so much that I, I do think you can really get sucked into both extremes, you know, like the kind of hyper-violent kind of aggressive language and then also language that pretends to be softer but is actually... It's Just as manipulative, you know what I mean. Like it's kind of like how you use it. I think yeah. more than what the actual words are.
0: The 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 self care language that that's the version of bless her heart. <laughs> yeah. You're like we yeah. don't want that
1: here either. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Well, so I wonder, and this is this is my favorite thing to ask everybody who you know joins me for a conversation like this, thinking about work and inspiration, what comes next, and space for life, what in this moment in your Venn diagram feels like your work in progress?
1: I mean, I think it's definitely less about work and career and more just about being able to appreciate stillness and to sit Mm -hmm. in discomfort is definitely my work in progress, Mm -hmm. you know, to, because I think that can be personal, but it can also be broader than that to be able to like sit in a in a time that is unclear that is like murky and uncomfortable and not to rush to fix it without really understanding it or to go for tools that might be more blunt than they need to be or perhaps even more sharp than they need to be, you know, like to really just figure out, Mm. like, wait and sit until something becomes a little more clear, or becomes a little more obvious, I guess. I think that's, that's hard to do. And Mm. it's hard to appreciate, I think, that liminal space between inaction and action. But it's also a good time to reflect, you know, I think I tend to in those moments, start kind of thrashing around. And I think a lot of us do. You look at all the kind of reflexive outrage that is fomented so easily on social media or just even within ourselves, you know, in a given situation, so reactionary. Mm -hmm. So I I think my work in progress is just sitting with that stillness and discomfort until I learn from it or maybe don't learn from it, but just be like, yep, that was really uncomfortable. And now Mm -hmm. on to the next thing. I'm working on that, Sophia. That's what I'm working on. Mm.
0: Yeah. I've label makered my pantry. I I can't do it anymore. So I have no way to avoid the discomfort. I have to sit. I'm like, well, I've I've labeled everything in the house. So the thing that I do when I'm stressed, I can't do anymore. And (sighs) I guess I have to sit with it. Ooh, that's good. Mm -hmm. That's a good tool. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a... It's good when you run out of distractions for those things. I think, that's, I think that's a really good goal for all of us. You know, just be with it.
1: Be with it. All right. Step one, label maker. Working yeah. on P-touch, it.
0: P-Touch. Best one. I've tried them all. I can send okay. you an Amazon oh, you, link. Should, you should do review. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh okay. I, I could be that person who like did the HGTV on YouTube, like review of, of Gizmos. Yeah, it's embarrassing, but.
1: I really like Wirecutter, the New York Times and strategist from New York Magazine. Like I'm kind of obsessed with, and CNET is another one that they do these like (laughs) reviews of like, anytime I'm looking for things, I'm like, and it's also things, this is such a non sequitur and probably not how you want to end this episode, but I'm always like things that I should just be able to empirically or just like experientially know what I want, like a baking sheet, who cares? But I'll be like, best baking sheet. And it's like, yeah. Oh my God, why am I researching this? Just go get one.
0: I think I research though because I want to get the one so I don't wind up having to get another one.
1: Okay. That's see, this is a really I like how you're turning something that I am looking at as a negative and you're like, no, there's a reason you're doing that. And I think it's, it's great. A, a time and time and money saver.
0: Yeah. Next time I okay. need a baking sheet, I'll ask you so I stop needing them.
1: I will be your resource for that. <laughs>
0: Carrie, thank you so much.